In today's episode of Theology for the People, I speak with Christy Anya Buile. She recently wrote a book called Literarily, How Understanding Bible Genres Transforms Bible Study. And in this episode, we had a great discussion talking about the different literary genres that exist in the Bible and how in order to understand the Bible properly, in order to interpret it properly, whether that's just for your own personal reading or for the purpose of teaching others, you actually need to understand the genre of the passage because your goal is to understand what God is communicating through it. And, you know, some people might just say, well, isn't it just obvious? Well, in many cases, it's not. And we're going to talk with Christy about that and about some specific examples of how misunderstanding genre can actually lead to a wrong interpretation of a passage. One of my favorite parts of the episode comes towards the end where she talks about a passage that is found in Esther chapter one. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I'll have links in the description to Christie's book, as well as some of the projects she's involved in. Now here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and I am joined today by Christy Anya Buile. Hey, Christy, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me, and great job on pronouncing my last name. <laughs> you get a gold star for that one. Well, you know, it shouldn't be too hard. I think it's actually pronounced just like it's spelled, so... It is. Yeah. And if you're not used to certain combinations of letters together, like B and W, which we don't have in our American English language, then sometimes it can be a little tricky. Gotcha. What, what is the background of that? Uh, yeah. So the background, it's Nigerian in origin. And so my husband, Thabiti, changed his name when we were in university. So he adopted the name, first and last name, Thabiti Anyawile. And Anibwile loosely translates to God has set me free. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. And he has a whole story behind that. So, but, but yeah, that's the origin. We meet a lot of Nigerians who think that we're, you know, from their country, but okay. <laughs> regular old U.S. Americans. There you go. <laughs> U.S. born Americans. Well, speaking of which, so I came to know about you in a couple of different ways. Of course, I heard of your husband for years uh, through the Gospel Coalition and things that I knew online. But then most recently, you were on our sister podcast, The Expositors Collective. And I really enjoyed hearing what you had to say on there and wanted to go a little deeper with you now that your book has come out. But I think I might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So why don't we just dial back? Tell us about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and the kinds of ministries you're involved in. Yeah. Okay. So I'm Christy. Right now I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. This is our home, but I was born in North Carolina, a small one traffic light town, and then got married at the end of university. And yeah, traveled around a little bit. We lived in the Cayman Islands for about eight years where my husband pastored the First Baptist Church there. And now we're back in D.C. We planted a church about seven years ago in kind of underreached, underserved population in Southeast D.C. And so we're here trying to spread the gospel from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So, you know, I have three children. So taking care of family and being involved in my church, taking care of my dog. <laughs> And then um, as the Lord gives me opportunity, I love to teach the Bible inside my church and in other venues. And I love to write and just share uh, God's truths and 
um, help people to understand their Bibles and understand God better through it. Excellent. Yeah, I saw you're involved in a couple of groups. I want to ask about those. So the Charles Simeon Trust, I've heard of that, but I'd love to hear more about what it is. And I'm guessing many of our mm -hmm. listeners don't know as much about it even as I do. And the other one is the Pelican Project, which I saw you're the founder of, but I don't actually know what it is. So maybe you could yeah. tell us about those. Great questions. So I'll start with Charles Simeon Trust. Charles Simeon Trust is basically a Bible training organization. They started out training pastors in exegetical, hermeneutical principles just to better equip them for the work of the ministry. But then they realized that a lot of women rarely receive biblical training, although there, there are many women who are teaching the Bible in various contexts within their church. So they started a women's division as well. And so that's what they do. So we teach people how we teach Bible teachers in exegetical hermeneutical principles so that they can take it back to their home churches and hopefully be more effective in their, in their Bible teaching. So the way Simeon Trust works is they have online courses that you can sign up for, but the main meat of the ministry and the, and the beauty of it is that say someone wants to sign up for a workshop, it's a two and a half day workshop. Uh, you are given two passages of scripture to prepare in advance with material, basic materials for how to work through the passage. And then you bring it to your workshop and it's kind of peer review. You meet in small groups and you discuss the work that you've prepared. And then you also receive instructional trainings on various things like context and how to find the main idea of a passage and how to form an argument if you're going to either either direct teach expositionally or even in, in Bible study and leading and um, yeah, and how to look for where the gospel is present in each passage that we study in scripture, things like that. So yeah, so you meet in small groups, you get direct teaching. There are a couple of expositions that are presented as far as modeling and also just encouragement for the time. And it's really a lot of work, but it's so rich and rewarding It because you're in person <laughs> getting direct feedback from your leader in your small group and also from your peers, other Bible teachers in the room. So excellent. I, I love it. It's great. That's cool. Yeah. So what is the it's Pelican Project, the other thing you're involved in? Yeah, the Pelican Project is an organization centered around biblical orthodoxy. It started because a group of women, many women, have just been confused about a lot of things that we see from even people who are Christians in terms of what they understand and how they interpret the Bible. And so we wanted to kind of recent our thinking around what biblical orthodoxy is, like the core tenets of our faith, but in a way that doesn't exclude women from different theological backgrounds. So what we do is kind of, we serve as a support for churches and women who are in ministry and um, even organizations who are trying to kind of recenter their thinking and their practice around the core tenets of Christianity. Cool. Well, we'll put some links to those in the show notes, but uh, we're here today to talk about your book and the concept behind it. So your book is called Literarily, How Understanding Biblical Genres Transforms Bible Study. And one of your thoughts that I read from you, it said that rather than reading the Bible literally, 
what we need to be doing is reading it literarily. Maybe could you explain that sentence? Because I've met a lot of people who would say, hey, look, I just read the Bible and I believe what it says. Why do you got to make this so complicated? Why can't you just read the Bible and take it literally? What would you say to that person? That is a good question. That would be nice, except for that's not really the way the Bible presents itself to us. And so we, you know, if we, if we read uh, every passage literally, then we're not being faithful to how, the, how God has brought the scriptures to us. So I would say that every passage of the Bible, we can and should read literarily. And that would dictate whether or not we read an individual passage literally. So for example, if we read portions of Leviticus literally, then from verse to verse, we'll, we'll be bouncing back and forth from, you know, what's, and people have these questions, right? Like what's lawful, what's not, what applies today, what doesn't apply today. But if we know that it's law and it's instruction and it's meant to draw people's attention to um, what God expects of his people and how he expects us to live in covenant community with him and with one another, then it kind of changes how we would read a book like Leviticus or even the Proverbs, where a lot of times people want to hold on to uh, passages in Proverbs, which is wisdom literature as promises from God, when in reality, they're meant to be proverbial wisdom that guides us in daily living, not necessarily promises or commands that are, that are rigid. Mm -hmm. Well, I, yeah. So two thoughts come to mind. One is, for example, I think many of us do this intuitively, except when we don't, right? So let me give you an example. Right. It's like Psalm 6, exactly. verse 6, uh, David says, I, I, I uh, flood my bed with tears so that I make myself swim. Now, I yeah. think that everybody kind of understands that he's speaking figuratively, right? Like he's using descriptive language to describe what he's saying is, I cry a lot. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And we understand that in lots of other venues, right? In books that we read, in television shows that we watch, even music that we listen to. But somehow when it comes to the Bible, we forget that, that there are also kind of rules, so to speak, and um, ways that we read it that reflect the intent of a book or a genre or an individual passage. So even within passages, you will find some sections that are more story and narrative and some sections they might throw in a poem, mm. right? So you might read the Gospels and you're reading the account of Mary and Elizabeth, and then all of a sudden you get a song <laughs> thrown in there. And so, so it's not a particular genre only has one kind of literature in it. But for me, the, what, when I talk about the genres in a literary sense, I'm thinking about it in two ways. One, it's function literarily, like how to, how to read it, and also how it helps us in understanding the full redemptive story of God's people, the full redemptive history, the meta-narrative of the Bible. So those are the ways that I'm, mm. I'm thinking about it. And that's not to say that there aren't other subgenres within a genre or different types of literature within a genre, but I think broadly they are 
thematic in a literary sense. Mm. That makes sense. I'd love to talk more about Proverbs in a moment, but before we do, let's mm -hmm. just, maybe could you define for us, okay, first of all, what is a genre? And then what are some yeah. of the genres that exist in the Bible? Yeah, we should back that up. So if we're talking about genre, we should define our terms. Really, genre is just a category. It's the way that we categorize things in ways that help us to know what kind of literature we're reading. Like we do this in regular life, right? I, I know, for example, there have been instances where people have read articles online and because they didn't realize that what they were reading was a parody and they thought it was yes. actual news or actual history, they've drawn the yes. wrong conclusions. And yes. so that's, that's a normal life example that's, that's very mm -hmm. real, but then the same thing applies to the Bible. If we assume the wrong genre, we can draw the wrong conclusions. So exactly. what are some of the biblical genres? Yeah. So the way I outline the genres is really based on how they're presented to us in scriptures, primarily, mostly. So the first five books of the Bible are the law books. And, and as, you know, explaining what the, gen what the genres are in scripture, I'll also talk a little bit about how I see it, how I see that they're kind of unfolding the redemptive story for us. So you have the law books, those are instructions. That's, this is how God told us who he is, what he expects of us, and helps us to know what it means to live, like I said, in covenant with him and with one another. And so the law is kind of like, that's the basic, everything goes back to the law. Even when you read, you know, some of the other genres that we talk about, a lot of them refer back to God's law. So law and laws are not merely rules, but it's instruction, Torah. That word means instruction. So then that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have Joshua through Esther. Those are our uh, historical narratives. So we call them Old Testament narratives, but some people refer to them as historical narratives. Same thing, they, they're stories, narratives, but they are also history. So this is truth. This is fact. These are things that actually happen. So a lot of times we talk about stories in the Bible and people think that stories are things that someone just made up. But no, these are true, real stories that are historically accurate. And uh, within those narratives, so if the law is God's instructions, then the narratives are telling us or showing us how humans have responded to God's instructions. And so what we see over and over again in, in the narratives is the lived experience of people and how they have responded to God's instructions. And we know how they responded, right? Not perfectly. And so then we have, after that, we have wisdom literature. We have Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, I would include in the wisdom literature. And those are basically how God expects us to live wisely under his instructions. So law is instruction. Narrative is how people respond. Wisdom tells us how to live wisely under God's instructions. And then we have the poetic uh, literature, mostly Psalms. And the Psalms give us the emotive aspect of how people respond to God's instructions. So not only how they live it out in in time, in history, but also how they feel about it, how they feel about God, how they feel about his instructions, ways in which they've obeyed, ways in which they've disobeyed, ways in which God's instructions, his word, his law is shaping them, their, their emotions, their thoughts, their, their understanding, and, 
And the Psalms are books of prayers and songs and liturgies that really draw us back to who God is and his instructions. Then we have the prophetic books, the uh, major prophets, which are the larger, longer books like Ezekiel, Isaiah, and then the minor prophets like Hosea, Habakkuk, Micah, those ones. And the prophets are now that we, now that in lived history, we see how people have responded to God's instructions. The prophets are warning people and telling them, Hey, if you can, if you follow, if you follow the Lord and obey his instructions, here are the th- the blessings and the things that you can expect from your obedience. If you continue to rebel and to reject God's instruction and to follow, you know, idols and the nations around, then these are warnings and here are consequences that God has promised as a result of that. And what do the prophets often do? They go back to the law. Remember what God said. They'll go back to Deuteronomy. They'll go back to Exodus. They'll go back to the historical acts, mighty acts of God in history to draw people's attention back to what has God said, what thus saith the Lord, and how are you expected to live? So the prophets are giving warning, they're giving, and they're giving consequences for disobedience, and, and they're really taking God's words and giving them back out to God's people to remind them. And then we get to the New Testament and we have the Gospels, and this is God's instructions embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of God's instructions point to him. He is the one who obeyed all of God's law perfectly. He is the one who lived the life that we couldn't live in obedience to God. And he is the one who died on the cross, taking the penalty of sin upon himself so that we who repent of our sins and trust in him would not have to bear that punishment. And then we get the, after the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Then we get the epistles. I'm going to put the Gospels with Acts, Gospels and Acts. Um, But Acts also is kind of, uh, it's kind of a tweener in the sense that you see the beginning of the early church. So from Acts forward, the epistles, they're all telling us how God expects God's instructions for the church and how God expects us to live in light of Christ's coming life, death, resurrection. And then finally, we have the apocalyptic books, and that's Revelation. But then we also have to dip back over to Daniel. So it's pointing us to the end of history and the going forward of of eternity. So those are the genres. Yeah. Law, narrative, wisdom, poetry, prophets, gospels, epistles, apocalyptic. Yeah, so that's that's eight if I've got it right. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so I think... You know, one of the things you say is our goal as interpreters isn't to meld the scriptures into a bland conglomerate, but to recognize the multiple forms in which God's word comes to us. I think that's important. And it seems to me that we have a lot of familiarity with a lot of these different genres in our own day and age, with one exception. I don't think that we have any good examples today of apocalyptic literature outside of the Bible, but I might be wrong. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that that apocalyptic genre has any parallels today? Or or if not, maybe you could just give us some ideas of what is apocalyptic literature? What is it aiming to do, et cetera? That's a good question. Yeah, no, that's good. So yeah, apocalyptic literature, we don't see a lot of, we don't see a lot of that outside of, outside of scripture. We see a lot of people trying to, <laughs> trying to give us a sense of 
the end of days. Literarily, there's a lot of imagery and symbolism. It's apocalyptic literature is full of imagery and symbolism. Those are kind of the main features of that genre of literature. And it's imagery and symbolism that's very, I think we would call it almost otherworldly, right? So there's not a lot of parallels to the images and symbols that we could relate to, you know, our time today. And so when you're reading apocalyptic literature, you really want to keep that, you really want to keep that in, in mind. So I think one way to dip into apocalyptic literature, if someone is interested, I would say start with the book of Daniel. Uh, first of all, the book of Daniel, the first half of it is narrative. So even though it is an apocalyptic book overall, because its emphasis is pointing us to the end of days, the first half of it is really story, narrative. And in the second half, you get a lot more of the symbolism and imagery and things that we would normally think of in apocalyptic literature. So I would say start with Daniel. And another reason for that is that a lot of what we read in the book of Revelation, you will come across in the book of Daniel. So if you read Daniel, it'll kind of, you know, allow you to dip your toe in, get your feet wet. But then when you get to Revelation, it won't seem so foreign to you. So, so yeah, I think those are some things to keep in mind. Well, are there any books or passages for which the genre is disputed, right? So some people would say, we think that this genre is this, where other people would say, no, we think the genre is this. And that actually changes the way that you interpret it or the way that you understand it. Yeah, I think so. I think a good example would probably be something like Song of Solomon, for example, because it's very poetic. <laughs> and so some people would want to place a book like Song of Solomon within the poetic genre rather than the wisdom genre. I think the function of Song of Solomon is to teach us about how to live wisely in romantic relationships. I think that's what it, and then Book of Job, the same way. A lot of people would put that in a poetic genre, but I, I place it under wisdom because I think that the, the thrust of Job is how to live wisely in the midst of suffering, right? So I think if you're, if you're thinking about it in, in different ways that, Possibly you could put those books in a different category, maybe under poetic, but I would place them under the wisdom mm. literature. Yeah, it's an interesting question because it seems that sometimes the line between these might be blurred a little bit or they might fit in multiple categories. So, for yeah. example, you mentioned the Torah, right, being instruction, but a lot of the Torah also includes narrative, which is historical. Mm -hmm. And as you said, like these are things that actually happened. I think about Job, right? Mm -hmm. So if we put Job in the wisdom category, does that mean that it's not also historically a narrative, right? Uh, that's, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. So I, in literarily, I try to keep things pretty, providing enough where, let's say we're, we're learning some new things about how to read and interpret, but not getting in the weeds of things that, would, would possibly be a distraction. So yes, broadly, Job is, I would say is wisdom literature, but there are, but there's a lot of poetry. And so there are other, I guess you would call them maybe subgenres. 
So within poetry, for example, you have poetic prose and, and then you have other kind of subcategories within that. So I didn't go into detail about a lot of different types of poetry like that. If I were teaching Bible study or something, I may point those, I may point that out, but but for simplicity's sake, I just didn't go into detail about the different types of poetry or even the different ways of thinking about wisdom literature. And the same can be said for narratives. So narrative is a broad is a broad category. So there's the genre narratives, but there are so many subgenres within a narrative. There are hero stories, there are tragedies, there are comedies. So there's so many other genres within it. I just didn't kind of spend a lot of time pointing those out in this particular book. Yeah. I wanted to give people a broad overview where they could get into their Bibles and study and make sense of it and feel like they're communing with the Lord, but not so much that it might cause distraction or confusion and more questions when part of my goal was to reduce a little bit of the friction that we have when we come to the Bible. And so, or at least my perspective was, if I add too many details, I may add to the friction rather than reduce it. it. Yeah, no, that's good. And I found that to be true. A lot of times, you know, when you approach a topic to study it, you'll think, okay, this is simple. I'll just uh, do this real quick. And then you realize, okay, actually, this is way more detailed and complicated and and all that than I ever thought. But then to communicate it to people in a helpful way, sometimes you got to make it clear. Yeah. One, yes. one passage I always thought about that had a disputed genre that I think many people don't realize that the genre is, I don't know if it's so much disputed as much as it is maybe something to recognize is Genesis chapter one. Yes. And that is a, mm-hmm. a passage which I think most uh, literary scholars would say this is poetry and uh, it's sometimes called the song of creation, whereas chapter mm. two of Genesis is very prosaic. And so... Mm-hmm. What would happen if we read Genesis 1, perhaps, as more like as a, like this is a historical narrative as opposed to a poetry, is that we might miss the point a little bit, and we might try to read the Bible as if we're trying to make it or assume that it's trying to tell us something that it's not necessarily trying to tell us. But at okay. the same time, I think that going back to like Job, right, is it, can it be on the one hand wisdom and true at the same time? Can Genesis yeah. 1 be true and also poetic? I think the answer is yes. We're, we're not, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that even within, like when we look at Job, it's obvious. It's obviously a story. It even starts in a, in a very narrative way. So it, it is a story. It is, and it's a historical story. So it's, it's fact, it's true, but it's written in such a way that one, I think like a lot, like, all poetry. Poetry is meant for memorization and recitation, for recalling. And I think even just for someone in that time to have memorized Job, for example, I just think it would be a powerful reminder of um, what it looks like, how to receive wise counsel, what unwise counsel looks like how to stay focused on God and his purposes and his plan in the midst of suffering. So, so yes, I think Job is a great example of a story, but it's also set within the wisdom, kind of the wisdom genre. Another one I thought about was, oh, we see it a lot in the gospels. So the gospels are stories as well. Those are narratives, history. 
It's the life of, of Christ and the growth, the growth of the church and the epistles and those kinds of things and Jesus's interactions with various people. And but within a lot of what Jesus teaches, he often teaches how in parables. Well, that's not. And, and the parables aren't facts. They're they're illustrations that are meant to make a point. And so oftentimes in the Gospels, we will. We, we are tempted to interpret parables as if they're fact and Jesus is teaching as if it's parable. So we have to be careful about, again, what we're reading, the genre as a whole, but even maybe the subgenres within it or the kinds of literature within it that help to shape our understanding. Well, of and it. that's actually something that comes up a lot in the Gospel of John, isn't it? That uh, people mm -hmm. misunderstand Jesus because they're taking him literally rather yes. than understanding the language he's using. Like, you must be born again. And Nicodemus right. is like, that, how, how can a man yeah. be born, right? How can he be go, born again in his mother's womb and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So really interesting. Yeah. Now, getting back to Proverbs, I said I wanted to revisit that. One of the things I think that you brought up early on in our conversation that was really good is that point that Proverbs, if we read it wrong, we might assume that these are meant to be promises or hard, fast truths when these are more like general principles and wisdom for life. And yeah. like, for example, you know, this very famous proverb, raise a child up in the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. Well, if that's a promise... Mm -hmm then I think what it leads to is it either leads to a lot of guilt and shame if it doesn't happen that way for you, or it leads right. to kind of just pride and arrogance if it does, right? Because you're like, hey, yeah. I guess I raised my child up in the way they should go, and you didn't. Yeah. And that's why, you know, my son or daughter walks with the Lord and yours doesn't. I mean, any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think, I mean, what you said is exactly right. And I think another thing is that it really affects how we engage one another in discipleship and in leadership and in teaching. So if we get this wrong and not understand that this isn't a, a, a promise in a, in, a, in a kind of in a rigid way, then how we counsel people will be vastly different, you know? So we might tell somebody, work harder, do more, or you know, maybe they think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian because the Bible says, you know, it's either saying something about me, it's saying something about God, mm. right? Or saying something about my child and a combination of the three. And so I think it just, I, I actually have um, know of people personally who had real crises of faith because one friend in particular I'm thinking of, her, she, and she kept saying to me over and over again, she was like, but I raised, I raised him in the way that he should go. I, you know, I, I, you know, as a, I raised him in a Christian home and I tried to make sure he was in church and I catechized him and I did all these things. And she was truly confused as to how her child could have, could have become wayward because she did all the right things. And so, you know, it can cause a real crisis of faith when we don't understand that that's really not the function of the proverb. I yeah. think one of the interesting verses in the Proverbs that I think should, like, if you're reading the Proverbs and you notice this, that it should point out to you that these are meant to be principles that need, you need also wisdom, not just in knowing what they say, but also how to apply them. So for example, right. Proverbs 26 verse four says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But the very next verse says, make sure you answer a fool answer. according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, well, right. 
That's one of my favorite ones. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. <laughs> they almost seem to be saying the opposite thing. But you would say yes. it's not opposite. How would you explain it? Yeah, I would explain that it's 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 giving you the the human kind of the the human kind of struggle and also giving us room to know what the situation calls for, right? So we have to be discerning also when we're thinking about wisdom literature. So answer in full according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own life. Like that may be a perfectly right thing to do in certain circumstances. But then again, you have to keep all, you know, all of scripture in mind, right? So when you're engaged with someone and maybe um, they're not listening or maybe they are combative in some way, then in wisdom, you have to say, you know what? <laughs> Don't answer a fool according to his folly unless you become likewise or even how scripture interprets scripture. So we can even look to the New Testament where it says, you know, uh, after warning a divisive person um, once, have nothing more to do with right. him, that kind of thing. So there's, so even with that, that's in an epistle. So there's a bit of proverbial wisdom even embedded there. So putting scripture together and saying, okay, well, there's room for answering people, but there are also situations that call for not answering. And even scripture affirms that if you're dealing with a divisive person, you have to know when to answer and when to walk away. Yeah. Um, Another one that comes to my mind is that if you don't recognize the importance of genre, like for example, you're reading a historical narrative. And in many ways, mm -hmm. that historical narrative is telling you what happened. It's reporting the news. This guy did this thing. And it's kind of up yeah. to you to determine, was that a good thing or was that a bad thing? Is that something to imitate or is that something to not imitate? Yeah. Right? Like, okay, mm -hmm. in Genesis 38, where Judah goes off with his friend Hiram the Adulamite, they get into all kinds of drama and trauma. Bad stuff happens. Mm -hmm. There's some prostitutes involved. There's some money and all this yeah. stuff. Okay, does that, it's not instructive. It's just kind of reporting the news. Exactly. So if we get the genre wrong and exactly. think that this is law, oh, okay, so this is what you do at sheep shearing time. You go, you know? Right. Another one that I think is really problematic is in a book like in uh, the book of Esther. That's another kind of classic example where I have heard some horrible kind of applications from uh, chapter one of the book of Esther, where, you know, the king is having this grand party. He, you know, everybody's drunk, they're partying. He asks Vashti to come in and, and parade herself before his friends. She says no. And then at the end of that chapter, he basically says, you know, well, what are we going to do? Like she, she defied the king. Like, you know, what should we do? And his advisors basically said, you know what? We are going to tell all the women, if, if, if other women hear about this, then they're going to defy their husbands too. And, no, you know, like men will not have any control over their homes. And so the end of that, it says that what the decree was that all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Well, that's a good thing to do, right? <laughs> However, in this context, this decree was made in the context of, of, abuse mm. and of just objectifying women and of just drunken display and, and bravado and by a very and ungodly person godly person exactly and and all of that so yes we can say even in the new testament the bible tells us that you know women are to honor their husbands 
But in this context, this decree wasn't made in, in, you know, with the idea of submitting oneself to godly leadership, but it was actually calling women to object themselves to more objectification and abuse and that sort of thing. So I think, and just, you know, if we just read that passage and we say, okay, no matter what, no matter what, what your husband says or does, even if it's sin, even if it's this and that, but look at what happened in the book of Esther, right? Like he didn't do everything right. And they still said, so, so it's just being very discerning about what we're taking away from this. And the burden of that passage isn't so much about that decree, is it? It really is about that mm-hmm. king. And you read that chapter and you are just left with the burning question, who is a better king? We need a better king. You feel the weight of the desire for a king that is righteous and good and humble, who uplifts and, and just positively um, views women as opposed to this king who does not. So I think that's the other thing when we're thinking about narratives is it is story and we want the, the story to tell itself. But also as Christians, we want to read narratives with a view for a, a view towards God and how is God acting in the lives of humanity and how are we to respond to God in relation to what we read and how does what we read show us show us more of who Christ is. So those are the kind of things I think we need to be looking for as believers. Yeah, that's great. So I know that was all over the place. I don't know how I no, got on I that like too. that stuff. As, oh, you're talking about how people misinterpret No, that's sometimes. great. And yes. I mean, that's the kind of stuff where you're like, okay, yeah, now I can see how that fits into the biblical narrative rather than just being like a bunch of like random principles and we're just like at a loss to determine like, should we listen to King Artaxerxes or should we not, right? Um, yeah. yeah, and then uh, we keep going back to Job. I think if you, you think about Job and his life and you read that. And to me, the burden of that book is how much more can he take? No one has ever suffered like Job. He lost everything. But we know there is one who mm-hmm. suffered even more than Job, believe it or not, right? Um, one who took the suffering and sin of all humanity upon himself, right? No one has suffered more than Jesus. But we read Job and that question is lonely. Like, how much more can he take? How much more will God allow to be taken away from him? Jesus lost everything, mm. right? So I think we have to be reading these passages as well in the light of Jesus's coming and how it points us to yeah. him. Yeah, no, I love that. So one last question, then we'll wrap it up. So how would you say quickly, like, how does it correspond to inductive Bible study method, like this whole idea of reading the Bible literarily and understanding genre, how does that relate to inductive Bible study? That is a great question. I, I think with inductive Bible study, <clears throat> you get a basic rubric, observe the text, interpret the text, apply the text. But in understanding uh, genre literarily, it gives you more specific questions to ask based on the passage that you're reading. So if you just say, what does the text say? What does it mean? How does it apply to me? Well, I don't, I can't really tell you what it says properly if I don't understand what the genre is and what its function Mm -hmm. is, right? And so that does lead to, can lead to misinterpretation. So if I, if I observe it wrong, then obviously I'm not going to interpret it well. And then I, I can't apply it. Yeah. And I have heard people include 
an observation about genre as kind of like the beginning of their inductive Bible study in that observation. So we're not just uh, observing the words, but we're observing, you know, where do they fit in the book? How does this book fit into the Bible? What kind of genre is it? So just in closing, any closing advice, remarks, resources, tell us where people can get your book, where they can find more out about you and your work. Thank you. Yeah, I think in closing, I would say that literarily is meant to be a guide, a help. And I think for me, the temptation, because I love studying God's word and I love all of us, you know, love learning. And I just always like to caution people that it's really not meant to be merely an intellectual academic exercise where you learn some cool new things, but it really is to help you more easily engage with God and his word and to be able to fellowship with him with a bit more freedom, with a bit more confidence and a bit more uh, competence with um, the skills that you learn from the Bible. And then as far as how to find literarily, wherever you like to buy books, you can probably find it. Moody Publisher is my publisher, so you can also go to their website. And then if you want to find out what I'm up to, you can go to myfirstnamelastname.com. Good luck spelling it. <laughs> or you can find me on Instagram. I hang out there quite cool. a lot. But I'm on all the socials. We'll put a link yeah. to your website on the show notes so people can find it. And Christy, so, so thankful that you took the offer to be on the podcast. Thanks for sharing some of your wisdom. And I hope that people really benefit from your book. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Thanks for listening to Theology for the People. I will be back with you again next week for our next episode in which we will be talking about financial matters and what is like the theology of money and finance, looking at those things, speaking with a man who's an elder at a local church, but has also worked in the financial industry and has a lot of thoughts around these issues. If you were blessed and encouraged by this episode, if it helped you and you want to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is by giving us a written review on your podcast app or podcast site where you listen to this. A written review really helps boost us in the algorithm, helps other people find this content and stumble upon it as they're searching for things online. So I'd love it if you do that. And if you have not yet done so, please go out and check out my new book, which came out about a month ago now. It is available on Amazon as well as on my website, nickkady.org. And you can check it out there. It's available in digital format and in paper copy. It's called The God I Won't Believe In. And we've had some previous episodes about it. I hope that you'll check it out if you haven't done so yet. I'll be with you again next week. God bless you.